0: Good morning. You have your Bibles, uh, flip to Acts 17. Mark told me he raised the pulpit a little bit. I'm a little shorter than Mark, so I think it's a little bit of an ego move, to be honest. <laughs> I'm just like really close to six feet. I always really wanted the six feet, never quite got there. It's just kind of haunted me. And I guess he just did this to remind me of that. But All right, so we are in Acts 17. Uh, As always with me, we're going to get through Acts. It's going to happen. It's going to be glorious. Um, And we're in Acts 17. So if you want to flip to Acts 17, if you have your Bibles out, we've been going through Acts as a family history. And what I mean by that is we're looking at the early church and we're looking at how they operated, using them as guideposts, as a way to understand who we are, where we come from, where we are going. I have found it to be personally really edifying to go through Acts and think about what it means to be a Christian. Uh and really encouraging and challenging. And today we're going to get to one of the most memorable and dramatic moments in the book of Acts, which is Paul's sermon at Mars Hill. So uh, let's actually start, let's ramp up to it. Let's do Acts seventeen 16. I'm going to read the whole passage here and then kind of go back through and break it up, but let's start with the whole thing. So Acts 17, verse 16. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Eropagite and a woman named Demaris and others with them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. We thank you that your word is living, that here today we hear that same sermon that Paul gave, and it preaches to us as well. Soften our hearts that we may receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I have to start with a story. My wife has been listening to Paige Brown, who's a really great teacher, and she used an illustration that's just too good not to steal, so uh, this is uh, illustration Paige Brown. She's a teacher. Uh, Tennessee, used very recently. Uh, It's a story maybe some of you have heard before, and it goes a little bit like this. This is a transcript of a radio conversation, apparently, between a U.S. naval ship with Canadian authorities off the coast coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. I am suspicious that this story is not true, but it's so good that let's just, you know, ride with it. All right. Americans over the radio, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. At this point, Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one, five degrees north. or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. Your call. All right. I don't know. It's just awesome. Uh, Okay, so... Uh, Christianity is ultimately a little like this, right? We are rolling full steam, and we think we have a plan. We know where we're going, and we frequently feel like we're the ones saying, hey, change your course. Christianity in this scenario, God, Christ, the lighthouse. In the end, Christianity is ultimately kind of a direct confrontation. Either we use the lighthouse to guide us on our path, which is what it was intended for, right? Right? The lighthouse was there to aid the ship as it's sailing, or we smash right into it and sink to the bottom. If this is true of us, it should affect the way that we talk about the good news, we talk about the gospel from the Bible. Our big idea today is simple, is that the story of the scriptures is ultimately a confrontation. I know it's a little combative, I'm going to unpack it very slowly, but it's ultimately a confrontation, and this is what Paul is doing when he stands in here to preach. We're conditioned today to believe that the most important thing is ourselves. It takes 10 seconds looking at any advertisement or watching any news or doing anything to recognize that the most important thing is that we are masters of our own fate, but Christianity comes along with some stark realities that we're the ship and there is a lighthouse. As the Heidelberg Confession puts it, we're not our own, but we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. So I think today that Paul gives us a true picture of what it means to present the story of Jesus, to present the gospel in a way that confronts us and calls us out. In so doing, he lays out a map of sorts of how we should do similar things. Uh, So I have three points for us today. Paul is driven by a holy provocation to an empathetic exploration that culminates in a fearless confrontation. And I'm going to try two things, okay? So the first one, I'm going to unpack the story and explain it and pull a principle out of it. The second thing, I'm going to be a little more experimental, hold it with a looser hand. I want to try to imagine what it would be like if Paul, say, stepped into our culture, observed for a while, and tried to preach a similar sermon. What kind of things he would say. Obviously, that part of it uh, is not the scripture. It's my attempt to apply. So you're welcome afterwards. We can have some nice friendly arguments about what I've done, but here we go. So, uh, I want to start with the holy holy provocation. Now, Paul's in Athens. Uh, When I grew up, for some reason, I was a really big Greek mythology buff. I don't know if it made a really strong comeback when I was a kid, but I was really into Greek mythology. I've noticed, too, if you know any young people, the Percy Jackson book series uh, has become really popular. Uh, Greek mythology is kind of still in the water Greek mythology is so strong that a lot of the names are immediately recognizable to this day, right? Hercules, Achilles, some of the places, Mount Olympus, Hades, and on and on. And as a kid, when I read these stories, they had a little bit of an otherworldly feel to them. I think it was one of the first times I had kind of come up against a story where the story was made for an audience in a totally different place with totally different values And so as a kid, I couldn't, for example, it seemed to me as I was reading Greek mythology that every time someone was in some kind of trouble, they got turned into a tree. And this seemed seemed like it was supposed to be positive, like you're being pursued by something dangerous, but don't worry, the gods helped you, they turned you into a tree. And as a seven-year-old, I found this very disconcerting. Um, And while the Hercules of the Disney movie from the 90s surely fit the stories I was surrounded by when I went to the real Hercules story, terrifying, dark, awful, no seven-year-old should be reading that stuff. But Greek mythology was compelling and engaging and continues to this day. Right now on Broadway, there's Hadestown, which is a retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice. And every few years, it seems like another Greek mythology film comes out that does really well in the box office. But it's not just Greek mythology that has had staying power. I mean, Greece is the home of philosophy, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. I have Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics sitting up right on my shelf. Many people will make the argument that human rights can find their start in somewhat in Greece and the government that they were running. In many ways, we would say that the ancient Greece, that as a civilization, accomplished about as much as we could ever reasonably ask from a culture. That it, that it was a, a peak. But when Paul enters Athens with all of its heritage, all of its glory. This is what stands out to him. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, I've been to Athens, and part of me when I read that is like, come on, man, at least enjoy the sights, you know, eat some good food. The Mediterranean food is fantastic. Let's go, Paul. But ultimately, what Paul sees is he sees all of these religious rituals poured out in the wrong direction and it burns him up inside. And I wonder if as he saw Athens and the people in Athens, he saw a reflection of himself. We think about the story of Paul. He comes along, and he's highly intellectual. He's highly trained. He's very zealous. He's very earnest as Saul, but in the total wrong direction, dedicated to the persecution of Christians even. And he has this confrontation with the living God and about faces. And as he enters into Athens, I wonder if he sees his story writ large, full of intellectual promise, praised by the world, full of accomplishment, and in the wrong direction, in need of meeting the living God. So I've, I've tried to picture what Paul would see if he walked into New York City. And I'm, I'm not doing a Long Island v. New York City. I'm just us generally. I think our, our sins are pretty well shared. What would provoke him, you know? What would, as he wandered around, what would make him cry out, you know, to God be the glory? We're at this really bizarre point in human history, I think, where if you took somebody from the ancient world into New York City and, and they just looked and they saw all the advertisements, and all the faces and the beautiful bodies put up on the screens and the billboards i wonder if they go oh are those the gods that you worship you know and in a way the answer would have to be a little bit yes and no you'd have to say well those images aren't gods per se but they're supposed to represent the kind of people you could become if you work hard enough and buy the right things well so do you make sacrifices to those images and you'd have to say not in the way you mean But yes, you won't believe the kind of sacrifices we make to these images. In the modern world, we're all just trying to become worthy of the worship we think we're entitled to. Now imagine if that endless flood of advertisement and social media didn't make you feel inadequate, which is what it's supposed to do, right? Must have made you feel just inadequate enough that you don't give up hope and you do feel like that $5 shaving razor will make you a better person. What if, instead of making you feel inadequate, it did what it does to Paul, which has caused this kind of holy provocation, this kind of stirring of the Spirit? That worship is supposed to go somewhere else. I say holy, a holy provocation, because it ultimately points towards God. And I, I want to notice, this is not what Paul does, Okay. Paul doesn't go to either one, he doesn't come in and end up with despair and retreat. He doesn't look around and see all of the effort poured into all this religious sentiment and all the sea of idols and gods. He doesn't look at them all and go, oh man, well, they're too far gone. This culture is done for. I am going to head to the hills, get a house, buy a gun, settle down, take care of myself. He doesn't say that, right? If you haven't felt that impulse at least a little sometime in the last few years, I don't know. All right. He doesn't say that, though. He does say, head to the hills. He also, though, does not go into self-righteous condescension. He does not go, oh, thank God I'm not like these people. Oh, man, look how obvious and shallow the things they're pursuing are. Pathetic. Let me post something on social media just demonstrating how pathetic, loserish these people are. Why doesn't he do that? Because he knows he was just like them. He knows he too was in pursuit of those things. He knows that that spiritual question was ruminating in him as well. Some of you feel the provocation. You feel that we're pouring so much into things in our God that should go his direction. Feel it. But your your response is either despair and retreat or self-righteous condescension but I think we should be challenged by Paul's response. In verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day. He just kind of, all right, well, let's get to work. And what I love about Paul is he doesn't go, well, is this realistic what I'm doing? Can I map out a five-year plan to save this whole city? He just like gets in there and gets to work. So he engages And he engages in both spheres. He engages in the Jewish synagogues. He engages with religious people. He engages with the Athenian marketplace, place where all the philosophical ideas are tossed about. And I would say this, if we sense that provocation, but it doesn't lead to hopeful engagement, that maybe we've felt it wrong. I recognize how crazy that is. And if we look at the world, You will not find many reasons for hopeful engagement. But that's not what we look to. We look to Christ. And the story of the scriptures over and over and over is about Christ coming to people that everybody else has ignored, that people have written off, that there's no way. And he engages, hopefully. He seeks out the true worshipers. We live by faith, not by sight. And So this holy provocation that leads to expectant engagement What are we expecting? We're expecting what Paul's expecting, that God is working, that God is seeking the true worshipers, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And he's expecting, I'm going to find some of them, which he does. So we have that, one, holy provocation. Two, we have an empathetic exploration. So uh, big picture, he ends up, we're going to get into how he gets there, but he ends up being drawn into Mars Hill where he gives this big sermon. And uh, it's just, this is, if Paul were a normal person, I feel like he'd be really intimidated by this moment, but we've spent enough time with Paul to know that he's just not intimidated by anything. Uh, he's a bold dude. And he gets dragged into this place with no, I, I would suspect, hardly a sympathetic ear. He is alone. And he has also been through many experiences just like this, that end with him getting beat, All right. Uh, it would be very reasonable for him to go, oh, not again, you know. Uh, Every time I end up standing in front of a very large audience, stones come towards my face, so maybe I should quit doing that, right? He doesn't do that. He stands in there. He delivers the sermon, a praise to the Spirit working in Paul in this moment. And he starts here. Let's look at verse 22. He starts by saying this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. He starts by proving that he is an expert in the people he is speaking to. He starts by proving that he has paid attention. And he has listened. Uh, when I was in college, um, there was every year some very, very, uh, I don't know how to say it, almost cult-like kind of evangelists would come to our campus and they would have the signs and the billboards and, can, you know, yell out terrible things to people as they were passing. Uh, and it was always very dramatic. Weirdly, it also provided a lot of opportunities for talking to people about the actual gospel as... People would ask, like, is that really what Christianity is about? And one time, in my naivete, I decided to approach one of these people and discuss their methods. <laughs> this was a mistake, uh, and I was called all sorts of terrible things. But one of the things that those people, what they were communicating was they did not care about the people on that campus. They had not taken any time to learn about University of South Carolina students. They, had not taken, they did not want to love. They wanted to just condemn, right? And Paul doesn't start this way. He starts by, I've been paying attention to you, and you're really religious. You care very much about worship. You desire strongly to worship something. So much so that in your fear that you have failed to worship rightly, you've set up an altar to an unknown God. Now, at this point, when he starts this way, I imagine that the audience hearing it goes, yeah, that's fair. That's right about us. He has said a true thing. And the other thing he goes on to do is he quotes two of their poets, uses their poets in support of his argument. He's read the things that they are reading. He's well-schooled in this. Francis Schaeffer used to say this. He used to say, if uh, he's a, a great evangelist, he used to say, if I have only an hour with someone, I'll spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what's troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I'll share something of the truth. Now, those five minutes are really important. It wasn't a full 60 minutes of listening. But don't miss the point. There was 55 minutes of listening, asking real questions. Do you know how many people are just never listened to and never have meaningful, incisive questions asked about their lives? It is really powerful to have that experience. And you know what I'm talking about. When somebody starts really asking real questions about you. It's like, it's not, I don't think it's a narcissistic thing. I think it's, I think it's a relational thing that's very powerful. Uh, I read a, Chuck Klosterman has done some reporting. He's a reporter. And he talked about how amazing it is when he's in interviews with celebrities or famous people, how much people will reveal. He's like, you know, I'm writing all this down, right? It's going public. And he ultimately just decided people are so desperate to be asked to have meaningful conversation, that they'll take it wherever they can get it, even if it's a reporter that they're not going to see ever again. Right. So the challenge for us is personal insight can buy us the right to say hard things. Paul's going to say hard things, but he starts by listening. He starts by knowing. This takes work, wisdom, creativity, practice, But if you're clearly and humbly doing this, if you're listening, trying to engage with people, my my experience, and I'm sure many of you have found the same thing, people are very forgiving if they know that you are genuinely seeking their good. It's not that we have to have the perfect answer, starting by asking questions, paying attention to what people are genuinely seeking. And you need that relational capital, honestly. Paul needs it for what's coming next. Paul could start with, he could go with the peak. He could start with homer he could start with aristotle he could do any of this but instead he gets down to their spiritual insecurity right the altar to the unknown god the greeks are clearly afraid we have failed to worship rightly and we need this this thing and but here's interesting here's what he doesn't say he doesn't go hey guys you're you're doing great you're worshiping as hard as you can well done keep it up His response is a very Christian response. This is Christianity in a nutshell, isn't it? We say, I'm a failure. We come out like, ah, I feel like failure, yada, yada. And the Christian response isn't, no, no, you're great. The Christian response is, well, yeah, but you're a loved failure. And that makes all the difference, right? That's the difference. We say, I feel inadequate. I feel all this. And Christian response is, yep, 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 totally. But loved, it's worse than you think. You're more inadequate than you thought. You're also way more loved than you thought. Paul has a message here. Is he saying, your insecurity that you've missed something is right. And it's way worse than you think. You haven't just missed a God. You've missed the God. Later in verse 27, Paul describes the Athenian religious impulse. This whole beautiful, incredible religious ex- exploration, you know, uh, All right, demonstration of religiosity. He describes it as someone kind of feeling their way through a dark room. Tim Keller is famous for saying, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's Paul's message. Your insecurity is right. You have failed to worship rightly. But the truth is better than you could imagine. Paul isn't there to reassure the Athenians, at least not yet. So if we're going back to Paul in New York City, let's apply the reasoning here. Alan Noble, uh, he teaches at a college. He's just written this book called You Are Not Your Own. It's really brilliant. Um, I highly recommend it. He's laid some groundwork for this, and I've been testing it out on my students over the last few weeks, so if Ella Middlecoff goes running out screaming, that's why. Noble argues that there's been a shift kind of in our experience, is that about a hundred years ago, the primary reason people would feel depression was for particular failures and religious guilt. You would feel depressed because there was a standard that you were supposed to live up to and you didn't. You failed a neighbor, you took advantage of somebody when you shouldn't have, you did this or that. But that now the dominant reason people feel depressed is a sense of inadequacy, just not living up. The world's impulse is to say, oh, you're fine as you are, and weirdly, the Christian response is, as I've said, you're more inadequate than you realize, and weirdly, this becomes comforting. Now, notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't come in and promise something God doesn't promise. I see this on occasion. There's a dangerous and insidious thing we can do when we're talking about Christianity. We can saddle up with people and say, I see that you desire perfect physical health or perfect... Emotional, mental health, or career success, and with God, you can get those things. But do you see what just happened? With that claim, God has been turned into a tool for accomplishing our own desires. He just becomes another technique, ten ways to get in shape, five ways to have better romance. He just becomes one of the ways. My suspicion is, as I observe some students who are Christian in high school and then not when they're in college sometimes, I think it's because they do this. Dear God, give me into that great college. Give me that A plus. Give me that thing. And God ultimately turns into an instrument and not Lord. One of my students in the last two weeks, I presented him with this idea, what if you weren't motivated by fear and anxiety or inadequacy? What if you were motivated by divine acceptance? You know, what if you didn't study because like, ah, I'm, if I don't, I'll be a failure. Or what if you didn't post that thing on social media because I have to matter, but instead you just were driven by the fact that deep, deep down, God accepts you. And this student said, but if I were to let go of my fear and anxiety, how could I be sure I would reach my goals? Fear and anxiety has been pretty good so far. It's gotten me the grades. I know it's hard. It's painful. I don't enjoy being myself, but it's gotten me the grades I want. It looks like it's put me on a trajectory to the life." I want. But do you hear it in the question? Divine acceptance sounds lovely is what the person is saying. What I wouldn't give to wake up and feel in my chest that I was loved by the most holy God, but would he help me get what I want? The way of Christianity doesn't just give us a new way to get the same old things. It reforms our hearts and it reforms our desires. Let go of the fear and anxiety you use to succeed. And yeah, you may lose that success. You may. This student chooses to reject fear and anxiety and choose divine acceptance. Maybe they wake up one day and go, I don't know if getting into Harvard's as big a deal as I think. Maybe the desire does change. But what you'll gain, you'll wake up and realize you don't need the likes or the approval or the performance or the awards or all the dumb trinkets in the world that say, You're worthy because you have the Father's divine love, and what else do you need? So Paul doesn't cheapen God by turning him into a means to a pathetic end. We need to be careful we don't do the same thing. And we don't reassure apart from the reassurance of the gospel. What is my only hope in life and death, says the Heidelberg Catechism, that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to God. All right, so let's wrap it up. We have this holy provocation. We have an empathetic exploration. And then we end with this fearless confrontation. Now I want to, I'm, I'm jumping around, like I said. I want to look at verse 18. And I want to show like what got Paul into this position in the first place was this passage. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, there's so much to get into in this passage. I could spend like a long time talking about the Epicureans and the Stoics. It's really interesting and I have to skip them. I'm sorry. But if you want to talk to Mark about it, he'd love to do it. All right. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. All right, people understand that he is saying something new and potentially even offensive. They understand this. And this is an important Part of this, what he's saying, big picture, is he has to, to proclaim the gospel, he has to say that what they're doing is is wrong. That while their spiritual question is right, and that's important, while their spiritual question, their desire for worship, there's 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 shards of goodness there, there's shards of truth that he's picking up, their application is wrong. The entire field, gods and statues and temples, the entire culture that comes with that, all of the money made off this system is wrong. This is a bold claim, right? I think if we are correctly presenting the gospel, it will offend us, engage us, and potentially convert us. But it will do those things. It'll stir it up. And it does these things, because Christianity requires that direct confrontation of the idols. Christianity requires saying at base, we're worshiping the wrong thing. We can't find it by ourselves. We need God to reach to us. We cannot get there. We are stumbling through the dark, and this is offensive. There's no way around it. In fact, if it is inoffensive, we probably haven't hit on the right thing. We probably aren't getting to the root of the issue. And look, if Paul stops in verse 29, jump with me to 29, When he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I think at this point, he said some bold things, but if he just stops there and walks off, they're like, all right, that was interesting. Yeah, cool. I learned some new things today. Luke has already pointed out that the Athenians loved hearing new things. He did it, you know, mission accomplished. I got something new today. But he doesn't stop with that. He goes on to verse thirty. 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. He goes for it. You'll occasionally run into arguments like, oh, yeah, well, of course people believed in the resurrection back then. They were dumber back then, and this is just what they did. Evidence to the contrary. The resurrection has always been a crazy thing. There was no time in history where you're, like, walking down the road one day, you see a dead squirrel on the ground, and as you're coming back, dead squirrel's gone, and you go, oh, it's resurrected. Nobody did that in history, right? People know how death works. find that argument to be very arrogant. (laughs) Only modern people know that resurrection is weird. Uh, Paul presents this And he presents the judgment of God He says ultimately we're accountable To God The resurrection of Jesus But there is hope We are more inadequate than we realize But God has made a way Through the death and resurrection of Jesus And the call to repent And our response Is to submit to this Lord With our whole lives and this isn't something Paul has invented. If you're doing an honest reading of the scripture straight through, it takes a hot six chapters to get from God created the Garden of Eden and everything is good to we rebel so badly that at one point in Genesis 6, it says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. and It says it grieves God. It's not hiding it. The problem from the very beginning is that we have rebelled against a just and holy God. That is the problem of the Scriptures. It's all there. And the answer is in Jesus. Paul isn't making this up. He's picking up the dominant thread that runs through the entirety of the Scriptures. If we ignore this or we miss this, we've missed the hard things. And I think it means we miss the good news. Well, You find yourself saying, I'm not really sure why Jesus had to die. I think we're starting to miss what's going on. That we have rebelled against a holy and just God, and it's only through Christ that we return to him. So for a modern audience, in totality, let's go back to Paul in New York City. I think it would go a little like this. Here's my attempt. People, I perceive you're very earnest about self-improvement and making yourself adequate and worthy. But I say to you that even if you become the person you wish you would become, if you could write it out, if it didn't involve repentance and it didn't involve following Jesus, it would still be inadequate. If you had no toxic friends, made perfect grades, You worked out, you were very good looking, everyone thought you were funny and wanted your opinion, you were great at work, you got promotions, you were uncancelable. it wouldn't be enough. In fact, it would be a more perfect expression of rebellion against God. Your efforts to become adequate, to feel accepted, to be worthy, is a right desire, but on our own, we are stumbling through a dark garage, and this is how it's been for all of us. And it is this way because deep down in our hearts, we rebel against our creator. We think we are right. We want that lighthouse to get out of the way. And if we spend a lifetime trying to authentically be ourselves, we will spend a lifetime rebelling against God. Your deepest fear that you're inadequate, the gospel confirms. But there is good news. God has offered us mercy for Jesus Christ. In the flesh, God came as Jesus to step into our striving and our messed upness and our awfulness and experience the world as we experience it, experience the absence of God on the cross, and was resurrected to offer us a way to divine acceptance. He calls to us to repent of all our self-focus and our desire, to turn over everything about ourselves, our work, our loves, our romance, everything, to God. You may never get what you want in this life, but through Christ, you can enter into something greater, a relationship with the most holy God. I have to end by pointing this out. Paul didn't care, ultimately, what the rebellious Athenians said about Look what happens in 32 and 33. This is just a a, a trend, right? They mock him. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. And then there's a list. Rightly said, the gospel is offensive, calls mockery. It's crazy. That resurrection bit, it's crazy. We're in it so much that sometimes I think we can't hear it with fresh ears, but it's tough. We believe some amazing things. But I suspect that a lot of us in this room believe those things, and I I don't believe these things, because, like Paul, we've encountered the living God who is holy, good, and has reached out to us in our inadequacy and said, through me, you are adequate. This is my son, this is my daughter, with whom I'm well pleased And every Sunday when we rest on the Sabbath, we testify to the fact that we are good enough because of the acceptance and divine acceptance we have from the Father. We don't need the trinkets that the world has to provide. So the last thing I would say is, if you are in Christ this morning, but feel the weight of the inadequacy, if you look at the social media account, if you look at the billboard and it makes you feel low if you can never live up, God's message to you is, through Christ, you already have. Through Christ, you already have. If you have not decided to follow Christ, let me say this. Jesus is a good Lord who loves his people, and apart from him, we just stumble through the dark. Call us to repent and turn to the one who loves us and came for us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your goodness. We feel the weight of our inadequacy and our failures. We know that in Christ, we are fully loved. Help us to live out this love and acceptance that we have. All the doubts come from the tempter that threaten to tell us that we are not adequate before you. Put those away, Father. Father. May the testimony of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection be enough for us. Thank you that one day we will hear those words. Well done, my good, faithful servants." Thanks to the blood of Jesus. In Jesus' name.